Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Almost every great movement of history has grown from the soil of friendship. In 1806, five students at Williams College, Massachusetts, were gathered to discuss the theology of missions, as we've been thinking about with Kier today. As they talked, as the story goes, a thunderstorm grew, and they took cover under a haystack. They continued to discuss missions, and out of that friendship of these five college students grew multiple missions organizations that ended up sending some of the very first Protestant missionaries from America ever. The Haystack Five, as we call them, were part of what God used to bring about the modern missions movement through the 18, 1900s to the present. It was a friendship. If you go back a century before them, the Second Great Awakening that swept through England and the United States in the 1700s was born out of a friendship. Three of the most important persons God used in the Second Great Awakening were the brothers Charles and John Wesley and George Whitfield. And it was not a coincidence that in college, before Whitfield even knew Christ, maybe any of them, that in college... All three of them were at Oxford together, and they all joined the Holy Club as unbelievers, ironically, but they were all part of the Holy Club and had a friendship together. Even that revival involved a friendship between these men. If you go back a few centuries before to the 1500s, to the Reformation, even the Reformation itself, it was not the product of one German monk, Martin Luther, because around Martin Luther there were so many essential friendships without which he would never have done what he did, including his right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, the young Greek professor there at Wittenberg with him. These friendships were necessary, and by God's grace, out of these friendships, movements that changed the course of history grew, but always there were friendships. We may wonder why that is. I think a part of the reason for that is that the courage and the boldness that is necessary for world-turning, changing movements, where you have to endure through many obstacles and much opposition, that kind of boldness and courage is the product of a sense of love, of a sense of affection, of knowing that people have your back and you have their back. That mutual, that commonality leads to courage that none of us have naturally in ourselves. Two are better than one, said Solomon in his wisdom, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Or you could think of a company today any of the great companies. None of them were built on the backs of just one man. There may be some founder, there may be some CEO, very significant, but always there's a board. Always there are co-founders. Always there are others involved. And they have to work together like clockwork or it just doesn't happen. It's always that way. If you have a group trying to accomplish something great and there's not rapport, they don't click at all, there's a sense of suspicion. You ever been a part of a group like that? You don't go far. <laughs> 
But if you have a group where everyone is working in unity, there is a sense of rapport, of common purpose. There is a trust with each other. Whether that's in the secular world, in business, if that's in a local church, wherever it is, you go so far by God's grace. You're able to do courageous things. Obstacles will be overcome. Setbacks will be mastered. New ideas will be born and pursued. There's life. There's a vigor that true friendships produce that really nothing else produces. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, but this is the means that He uses. And even on a smaller level, if that's too epic and large, think about in your own life those friendships that you've had. You've encountered a person, you have a like-mindedness, and they ennoble you to do things you simply would not have been courageous enough to do without this person. If you've had any experience that resonates with any of that at all, then you have seen a shadow of the object we're discussing today. If human love and affection can produce such amazing results on earth, how much more divine affection, the love of God, when it's grasped and understood. It can change everything. And that's what we're seeing in 1 John today, the kind of courage and boldness it produces. So look with me, 1 John chapter 4. I'm starting in verse 17. By this, abiding in love in verse 16, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He, God is, or Christ is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Here you have two unmixable solutions, two liquids that cannot mix, oil and water, Two contraindicated medications, if that resonates with you. Two things that cannot exist at the same time in the same place, and they are fear and love, like light and dark. One negates the other in either direction. And John presents before us fear and love. One will always drive out the other. You may be here this morning racked with fears. Maybe anxieties has been your breakfast every day this week. You're having those experiences. It may be at work. It might be your family situation. It could be any number of things. The larger international political circumstances or our country or anything. And you feel the tightening in your chest and now it's just become a part of your musculature. It just stays right there. You may be interested in a passage of scripture that tells you what can cast out those fears. Love. Love casts out fear. John will be, as we'll see, speaking especially of the fear you may feel in the light of death and what comes after, of the day of judgment. That's what he speaks of. He says a perfect love will cast that fear far away from you.
You don't have to live under the shadow of it. It can go if you have a perfect love, a matured love, as we'll see. It's like a wounded soldier who recovers and is eager to get back to the front lines. Why? You just were wounded. Why? His love for his comrades. He doesn't want to leave them alone. Love has a similar effect. It leads you to be courageous, to be bold for others when you feel God's love for you. Perfect love casts out fear. When John says that, he summarizes this passage. Perfect love casts out fear. And in keeping with that summary, we are going to break this message just into those two parts. First, we want to know what is this perfect love that can cast out fear? Can we get it? What is it? So perfect love. And then finally, we'll turn to what does it mean it casts out our fear? Perfect love casts out fear. Those will be the two headings as we look at these verses now. So let's begin with the first, which is a perfect love. We're only looking at three verses today, and yet you'll notice the word love in English appears five times, more than any other word, including is, in this passage. Obviously, this is a passage about love, and you may remember we're in one of the longest sections in John that has to do just with love. We've been in it since verse 7. We'll be in it to the end of the chapter in verse 21. So the focus is on love. Our passage begins, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence. And then this boldness that we're seeking, it's a product of perfected love. And in verse 18, he puts it this way, there's no fear in love, but perfect, it's been perfected. So now it's perfect love casts out fear. I imagine all of us would like to have our fears cast out, yes? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? But when you look at the requirement here that perfect love casts out fear, you may feel like, well, why try? <laughs> Who of us has a perfect love? Who of us ever in this life will have a perfect love? Well, if that were the case, that this were simply unattainable for you, why write about it? Why are we studying this passage? If you can't attain this perfect love in some sense, a love that casts out your anxieties and your fears, then this is a useless passage, and certainly none of us would call it that. So as we consider this perfect love, the first thing is to note, it has to be something that you can attain. Not perfectly. Characteristically, yes. Now, the interesting thing as we consider just what is this perfect love is he nowhere in this passage tells us whose love this is. In other words, are we talking about your belief and understanding of God's love for you? Are you perfected in love when you apprehend and believe God's love? Very possible. You can see in verse 17, for example, he says, if you have this love, you'll have confidence for the day of judgment. And then he tells us in 18, fear has to do with punishment. That makes it seem like the love he's talking about here is really your grasp on God's love. Because what gives you confidence in the day of judgment? God's love for you, right? But on the other hand, there are parts of this passage that make us feel he's really talking about your love for others. Verse 16, he talked about abiding in love. That's living a lifestyle of love. And he starts our passage by this, I think he's referring back to that, by abiding in love, 
our love will be perfected. He adds verse 17, because as he is, so also are we in this world. So that's your love. See, he's loving. Well, because that, you are loving as well. Well, this is kind of important for us to figure out what John has in mind. Is John saying, look, if you have a great confidence, a perfected sense of God's love for you, then your fears will be driven away? Or is John saying, if you yourself become the sort of person always sacrificially loving others, that will help you have confidence for the day of judgment? Those are two different approaches. So it kind of matters which one he's talking about, and he doesn't tell us outright in this text, and you could lean either way. I think that the resolution to this whole question is actually in verse 19. We love because He first loved us. We said all the way back in verse 7, which started this long discussion of love, that God's love for you is the basis of your love for others. Remember? He said, Beloved, let's love one another, for love is from God. So he's saying, you love others, but when you do it, it's only because God loves you. I think that both sorts of love are in mind in this passage. When John uses the word love in these verses, it's shorthand for you so believing and grasping God's love for you that it leads you to love others. Sorry if that seems complicated, but I can't understand this passage outside of that. I think both sorts of love are in mind. Even the term abiding in love from verse 16, I think, has this sense you're in a world of love, experiencing God's love, believing it, and you're living a life outward in love. And these two really can't be separated. Is it possible for you, if this passage, for example, was really just talking about God's love for you, would it be possible for you to grasp that love and not be loving yourself? Or if, on the other hand, we said the passage is just talking about your love for others, would it be possible for you to love others truly and genuinely without a grasp of God's love for you? No. So both concepts are brought together. So when you hear love and perfected love, the key of this passage, the kind of love we're talking about is you being in a situation where you are believing God's love for you in such a way that it's flowing out in your love to others. That is the blend of God's love and your love that I think is John's focus here. And if that's true, if you want the sort of love that's going to cast out your anxieties and fears, you will have to become skilled in both receiving love from God, and in giving love. Consider those two, receiving and giving love. First, think about receiving love. When I say that, maybe there's something in you that hesitates because, of course, in culture today, you becoming skilled in receiving love is all the rage. <laughs> you need to care for yourself, others need to care for you, and there's a sort of self-focus, call it what you will, you need to love yourself, forgive yourself, and receive the love of others. We can debate that another time. Let me just say, John's not talking about that, and I'm not talking about that right now. When I say that the perfect love in our passage involves your skill at receiving love, I mean receiving God's love. 
That's clearly the focus of John in this whole passage. There's nothing about receiving the love of other people, great as that is, but the focus is on are you apprehending and grasping the love that God has for you as one of his children? It's even there in verse 19. He, God, he first loved us. When John speaks of a perfected or a perfect love, I have really good news for you. He does not mean if you want to cast out anxieties, you have to perfectly, absolutely, with no flaws, believe God's love for you nonstop all the time. <laughs> then it would be hopeless. We would just say, well, just wait till we're with Christ. That's the only time we'll attain that ever. That is not what John is getting at here. Like I said, there has to be something attainable in this. And actually, this is one of those cases where in the Greek, the original language, the English is wonderful. There's no like mysteries in the Greek that you're missing out on. But there are some times where since this was written originally in Greek, things are highlighted in that language that don't quite transfer into English. And when we use the word perfect in English, it's a translation, we assume that means the best possible, perfected, nothing short of. That's why a passage like this at first seems discouraging. <laughs> I don't have a perfect love and never will in this life. And according to the English, perfect, that's true. But this was written in Greek. And the Greek word for perfect, the verb perfected, the related, there is a clear emphasis, not on absolute perfection as we think of it, but on a maturing the idea puts a focus on the end or the goal toward which we're moving. He's saying this is a love that has moved quite a ways toward the goal. Doesn't mean we're there yet, but we've moved down the road. We've taken the ball down the field toward the goal. Maybe an easy way for you to think of a perfected love. Don't think absolute perfection now, but think instead of a mature love. That's what John's talking about. And if a part of this love is understanding God's love for you, then the only way you're going to have your anxieties and fears of the judgment day and of all things removed or cast out is for you to have a mature sense of God's love for you. If you find yourself filled with fears this morning and anxieties, I'm no doctor, can't tell you the etiology or pathology but John can tell you that that ultimately comes from a lack of a sense of God's love for you. Assuming you believe in the God of the Bible, all-powerful, all-wise, that God, if you're experiencing fears and anxieties about the day of judgment or even other things, that's where it's coming from. There has been a breakdown in your understanding of the love that God has for you. There is an immaturity, if you will, in your understanding of God's love for you. You have not been, as John says, perfected in love. You haven't matured in love to the point where that is cast off. You may have been convicted back in verse 16 when the apostle said, We've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That's meant to be very refreshing. But sometimes that's convicting because we look at that and go, can I say that today? <laughs> John can say that. Can I say that for myself? Can you say that? I have come to know. 
I have come to believe the love that God has for me. It's possible that for some here, when you came to Christ, it was like you were living in an icy wasteland and the blazing dawn rose, the sun of God's love shone upon your life. It begins to thaw everything. Your eyes are opened. And at that point, you perceived God's love for you and you couldn't believe it was there because sinful you, how could God love you so much He gave His Son to die for you? And maybe you went on the first months after your conversion Resting in the love of God. And then you failed. You sinned. Maybe in a way that you were used to sinning before you came to Christ. You thought that was all behind you. So you get back up. Your legs are a bit unsteady now. Kind of looking up to the sky. Does God still approve of me? But we're continuing on. Not sinning as much as I used to. And then you failed. At this point, you get back up, but you're uncertain when you look up. All the love that you sensed from God, you knew and you believed it. You would die on that basis. As you go along, you start to get a sense of, well, I think God does love me, yes. But the experience of it wanes. You put yourself in a penalty box. You try to atone for that in some way. And on your good days, you feel God's love. And on your bad days, you just wait till the next day to try again. Maybe that you used to be able to say, God loves me. And there's nothing more exciting. And now maybe you say, God tolerates me. And yet, in the scriptures, over and over and over and over again, that which we claim to believe... The love of God is spoken of in no uncertain terms for imperfect people like us who trust in Christ. What Jeremiah the prophet said is really true for all God's elect when God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's true first and foremost of Israel, God's people, and yet true also for us. God's love for us is an everlasting love. From before time began, He determined it, and it will stretch on into eternity. And yet we live here like, I hope He still loves me. In fact, when you look at Jeremiah saying that, God through Jeremiah, I've loved you with an everlasting love to the people of Israel. It's in the context of a very imperfect people. Israel who provoke God over and over. If you read your Old Testament, it's the story of Israel's failures over and over again. And of God's steadfast love for Israel. How much more for us who have been engrafted in God's elect, God's people. But it's not always easy to feel that. So we have a whole Old Testament to remind us of God's love for His people. You get to the New Testament and you read in Romans chapter 5, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are you still a sinner? Christ died for you when you were a sinner. If you're still a sinner, Christ died for you. Romans 8 really presses the point home. Quote, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It is an argument from lesser to greater. Here you are wondering if God really loves you because you fail. And Paul in Romans is trying to push the argument in front of you and say, 
Do you remember before you knew Christ where all you did was fail? <laughs> That's it. There was no succeeding. There was only failing. You were enslaved to sin. You were in open rebellion against God. Your heart was entirely hostile to all the things of God. In that context, God freely, fully loved you. That's when Christ died for you in that state. How much more now that you fail, but not even like you failed then, but you failed, does God love you now? Enough that He would give His own Son for your life. The New Testament's answer is absolutely yes. Whatever you think God's love for you is right now, you're wrong. It's more than that. You can't exaggerate it. We can't overstate it. All of us underbelieve the love of God. Every last one of us. It is powerful. It is full. It comes from God's own heart and will. It is pushed out. We don't pull it out. He's not stingy with it. He loves all His people. Well, perhaps your view of God's love, your apprehension of it, lessened, not so much by your own failures, but as you went on living your Christian life and suffered. And you encountered evils that you couldn't dream about when you came to Christ, and now you wonder, if God really loves me, why would He let that happen to me or to people I love? Paul, in that same passage, answers your question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? You had any of that? Distress? You've been distressed? Persecution? You've been mistreated for the gospel? Famine? You lack necessities? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? Do those take Christ's love for you away? Do those lessen the intensity of His love for you? Paul, who experienced every single one of them ten times more than any of us, said, may it never be. No. Do your failures turn down the volume of God's love? No. Does the suffering and the hardship you experience in life dampen the intensity of God's love? No. You know the only thing that changes from the time you come to Christ to now? Your grasp of God's love. That's it. Nothing else. It's in you. It's not on God. That's on you. And therefore, God gives you a passage like this one. You're afraid, especially in the face of the day of judgment. That's because your sense of God's love for you has dampened. And you wonder if He still loves you like He did at first. And you feel a sort of apprehension. The fault there is not in God's love, it's that you have stopped believing in God's love for you like you once did. Therefore, the fears appear. You may yourself not be tempted as much by your own failures or not tempted as much by suffering. Perhaps the thing that you have the hardest time with is believing God's love for you individually. And there are some people who are wired this way and tempted this way where you have no doubt whatsoever of the intensity of God's love for the world. It's just hard to believe God's love for this one person in the world called you. You have no problem believing that God cares for, will take care of the believers in this room. And when they're struggling, you say that. God loves you. He will take care of you. He will provide for you. And you will go into paradise. But then when it just comes to you by yourself, 
knowing yourself, that can be a harder thought. Does God love me? You may be like William Cooper, the hymnist. We sing some of his songs. He lost his mind a few times in his life, haven't we all? But he really did. And he said in one of his letters in a bad day for Cooper, he said, my friends think it necessary to the existence of divine truth that he who once had possession of it, so someone who comes to Christ, should never finally lose it. So if you come to Christ, you can't lose that. And he says, I admit the solidity of this reasoning in every case. I agree. In every case, but my own. And why not in my own? Crickets. He had no answer. He just couldn't believe it. He just couldn't believe God's love for him. For everyone else, yes. For him, no. If you are racked with anxieties, this is the problem. There are other things involved, but this is a large part of the problem. Your sense of God's love for you. In other words, your love has an immaturity about it. It's not perfected. It needs to mature. It needs to develop the sense of God's love for you. And it's an interesting thing because if you open up the children's primer on Christianity, that first textbook, so to speak, what's on the first page, Jesus loves me, this I know. It's the most basic building block of Christianity. Even unbelievers know this. Certainly you know this data and yet it's the hardest, perhaps, of all things to believe within Christianity. Believing the Trinity, as complicated as that may seem to us at times, is nothing compared to believing that God loves you. That's hard. God knows that can be a challenge for us, especially with Satan always whispering his lies into your ear. To call into question, he's an accuser. He doesn't want you to believe it. But you have to. You have to be like Paul who could say of the Son of God, He loved me. He loves us. Not being individualistic here, but Paul could say, He loved me and He gave Himself for me. So if you want to cast down anxieties, you have to develop, mature in this skill of simply believing what God says about His love for you. In other words, receiving love from God. But like I said, the love that's in view here is not just our receiving love. John is also thinking about the consequence of if you believe God's love for you, you will give love to others. If you want a sureness, a casting out of fears, it will also require that this develop in your life, a giving love to others, your love for others. God's love's foundational, yours is not. And yet yours is the necessary consequence. It will follow after. I mean, it's in our verse, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. You didn't love first. He did. So it's good to put the emphasis on God's love first. But notice he does say we love. Both kinds of love are in view. I don't really have to belabor this second point, I feel, that we ought to love one another because haven't we been belaboring that this whole passage, this whole actually book, because it's been one of John's primary themes. Beloved, let's love one another. We see it every single chapter. We ought to love one another. I don't know that I need to press that further other than just to say what John is saying in this text. 
you probably are aware by your own observation, when you look around and find someone who is the most calm, who seems the most at peace day by day, most at rest, doesn't mean there aren't some burdens, but they are the people who are steady through trial. Now, unless they are narcissists or psychopaths, because that does happen, in most all cases, aren't those the people who love other people the best? Isn't it? Just think about those people who are most typically, unless they're just consumed with themselves and they don't care about anybody, but in most typical cases, as a believer, those tend to be the people who are most loving, sacrificial outward toward others. That is one of the points that John's making in this passage. They have a mature love. They are resting in their sense of God's love for them. Then they're living lives outward. They're not sitting at home focused on themselves and their own concerns, that will produce in you all kinds of anxieties. If you're sitting at home looking at, on your phone, the numbers in your bank account, and there is your focus, you will be worried. You're looking at how your stocks are doing. You will be worried. If you're focused inward on yourself, is your house appreciating? Are you going to sell it for more and move to the next house? How am I doing? Then you will be racked with anxieties and the people who tend to have the most fears and anxieties about the day of judgment but also here tend to be the ones most sucked up on themselves. John says, if you want a perfect mature love that casts out fears, it's going to include you living a sort of life that makes it clear you're resting in God's love. And how do we know that? Because you're loving others often and well. You are abiding in love. So, on a practical level, when we talk about receiving God's love, you may find that hard. You may not know, how do I just believe God's love more? How do I do it? Flip a switch. Flip. Nope, didn't happen. So what do I do? Well, since that is so connected to our love for others, just pray that God would give you a better sense of His love. And in the meantime, while you're waiting for that, see all these people in this room? They have needs. Go meet their needs. Go love them. Go show up. Go risk something in love. Go make somebody a meal. Go write somebody a card. Go ask someone genuinely how they're doing. And if they're not doing well, pray with them. Pray for them. Go home. Pray for them some more. <laughs> meet needs. Go down to the rescue mission. And meet needs. Go do something loving for someone somewhere. It's not a magic formula that casts out all your fears, but I guarantee it is one of the means God uses. Not only our sense of His love, but living lives outward that helps us to have a confidence in the face of the day of judgment and also day by day with all of our other fears. So if we want this kind of love, this perfect love, this mature love, it will require a skill in receiving God's love and a skill in giving it. So there is perfect love. But now we have the second part of our passage, not only perfect love, but what does it do? It casts out fear. We're going to move from specific to general here like we've been talking about. He says perfect love casts out fear and the specific kind of fear that perfect love casts out is fear in the face of the day of judgment. 
which is very closely tied to a fear of death and what comes after. Notice verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, if we're abiding in love, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is loving, so also are we in this world. And then verse 18 too, there is no fear in love. But perfect, mature love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment on the day of judgment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now John has his eyes set on that coming day. It is a real day. It really will appear. All of us one day will be there as surely as we are here. It is a day that he calls a day of judgment. The logic of why he should focus on this fear is made obvious in verse 18. Why would we be afraid of the day of judgment? Verse 18, well, fear has to do with punishment. You're afraid you're going to fail the test and be punished with hell on the day of judgment. The scriptures are very clear, just as your conscience is clear, that there will be a day when we will give an account to the supreme divine being for all that we have done in the body. You can see this everywhere. I'll give you just a few passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, speaking to us as believers, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And there is discussion and question about when we stand before the great white throne of Christ, that judgment found in the end of Revelation, and another judgment with others. I personally believe that's true. Regardless, believer or not, we all will, every single person will stand before God, and Christ is the one who has been given judgment. So he will be doing the judging. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Romans 14.12 is maybe the simplest. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Even those who have never heard one of those verses have a longing within them by their God-given conscience, for justice to be done on earth. And therefore, some sense that if there's a God, there will be justice done. That's what we're talking about when we talk about a day of judgment. It's when justice is done by God. Every evil, every wrong is punished. It's called a day. You can see that here in our passage. It's a day of judgment simply because, not that it all just has to take place one day, although it probably will, because it's a future point in time. Everything will culminate. John is drawing this from the Old Testament where the prophets would speak of sometimes just that day or the day of the Lord or the great and awesome day of the Lord or the day of God's wrath. It's all referring to the same thing, a future judgment which is coming. One of the prophets spoke of that day like this, quote, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. No wonder there's a fear. <laughs> the 
because God will bring every evil to account. But if you keep that picture of the day of judgment in your mind, what do you do with this? We may have confidence for the day of judgment. Darkness, gloom, disaster, wrath. And you stand there with confidence on the day of judgment. How is that possible? Solomon, I think, answers in a roundabout way in his song, Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. It's not that that day will not be terrifying in some regards, but it's that you and I are going to be hidden in the warm embrace of Christ. It's my only hope when I look forward, whether it's to death or the return of Christ, and there is a day of judgment that is coming. Many of the arguments that we commonly use to console ourselves, they just don't cut it for me. I don't know about for you. The one thing that brings me the most comfort in the face of death is the thought that I go there in the arms of Christ. It is simply me falling into the arms of Christ for His embrace, and He will carry me across that narrow sea to the celestial city, but it has to be Christ Himself. And isn't this the good news of the gospel? Why is the gospel good news? For this very reason. The only safety that we have, the only thing that gives us confidence in the day of judgment, it is the love that God has for us that we have securely forever through Christ's death upon the cross. There is no judgment that remains for us. When you die and you stand before God and the day of judgment comes, or if it comes in our lifetime, and you stand there, it's not going to be you standing there next to your family. It's not going to be that way. It's not going to be you standing there behind your parents. It's not going to be you standing there with money to offer to God. You don't have any money at that point. The old world passes away in a flame of fire. You don't have bank accounts anymore. You don't have security systems. You don't have government to protect you. You don't have your own physical strength. You don't have weapons. You have nothing. It's you, naked and exposed, alone, by yourself, and there's no one but you and God in that moment. How will you have confidence? The only thing you will have in that moment to protect you is the love of God for you. It's the only thing that can move His will. He who is the only potentate who has full control over your destiny, who decides upon destruction forever, which we justly deserve for our sin or paradise. You can't move Him. There's nothing you can do. It is His Love alone that makes the decision. But if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have that love, have it securely and cannot lose it, that Christ has secured it for you, that because of God's love, Christ came, died to remove the impediment of the judgment you deserve. He took it upon Himself. You are now in Christ. God's eyes twinkle toward you like they do at His own Son. He has love for you when you stand there naked and exposed. You know what you can have in that moment? confidence for the day of judgment. Because you've lived your life even here on earth basking in the love of God for you made clear in the gospel. And that's been obvious because you've lived a life, not perfectly, but being perfected maturely of love toward others. And as He is, Christ loving, so you are in this world. How can you 
knowing all the terror of the day of God's wrath, how can you, like Paul, say, my desire is to depart and be with Christ? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Even when you think of the inconveniences, it's a, quite an understatement, I'm sorry, but whatever you want to call them, the pains and inconveniences of death itself. I don't want to experience it. You probably don't want to experience death. It's a curse. It's bad. And yet Paul can say, oh, I want to experience it. Because he's so certain that right on the other end of it is Christ who loves him. To depart and be with Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is our birthright as Christians. Whether we take full advantage of it or not, because we don't always, you don't have to be afraid of death. It's a weapon the devil had, threatened you with it. It's gone now if you're in Christ. You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of the day of judgment. You don't have to. Have you ever laid there in your bed and wondered, what if I don't wake up? You ever wondered that? There ever been an apprehension when you think of the reality of death? The reality that things won't always be like this. There is something to come. If you lay there with a the fear, sometimes, to be honest, it strikes me in weak moments. It means our love has a maturing to do, doesn't it? Our sense of God's love, our living in love for one another. It is a perfect love. It's not just any love, but it is a perfect, mature kind of love. Seeing God's love and loving each other that casts out, that's the word, takes your anxieties, cast them out, forget those. And the maturest kind of love is the martyr's love. The martyr who boldly can stand there on the precipice of eternity knowing that he has only minutes remaining in this mortal life and can smile and can say bold things. It's the martyr saying to his companion, let's light a candle in England. It's the martyr saying, grind me up like grain for the Lord's offering. That is a person who is aware of God's love for him or her. And although we may not all be given the honor of martyrdom, every one of us is on track to have a love matured to that point that we can say we want to depart and be with Christ. So aware are we of the love of God. So mature is our sense of God's love and our love for each other. I said that we are going to focus on the specific as it is emphasized in the text, but you can take this and broaden out the fear because the reality is, look, if you really get to the place where your love is so mature that you're truly not afraid of dying, well, what else can you be afraid of? <laughs> if the moment you die, you receive everything you've most wanted, if to die is Christmas Eve, if to die becomes not a terror, but rather a joy to enter into eternity and to be with Christ, what else is going to scare you? If you can really get to the place where when contemplating death, you say, oh, it's only death. If you can really get to that place in keeping with Jesus' command, do not fear those who kill the body and after that <laughs> have nothing more they can do. <laughs> oh, it's only death. They can only kill you. If you get to that place, who are you going to be afraid of? What are you going to be afraid of? 
Everything you fear in this world, you fear because it's a little death. You fear the loss of money because in some way it detaches you from whatever sense of security you have on earth. You fear the loss of a loved one because it is a mark of losing what you most cherish on this earth. Because you'll have it again in heaven if they're Christians. It's like we're attached to this earth with a series of strings and every little thing you fear is like snipping one of those strings. You're afraid to lose one of those strings, one of those strings. But if you get to the point where you really believe, based on the love God has for you, that the best thing that can ever happen to you is the snipping of all those strings at once in death or in the day of judgment coming, then why will you be afraid of one, one, one? Each tragedy, which we do truly grieve here, we do feel them, we are human, we are flesh and bone, but each one of them for us as Christians, if our love is mature, detaches us one bit more from this world that is passing away. As has been said, every day we spend on earth is a day lost in heaven. And that is our feeling. And if you're not afraid of snipping all the strings and going to be with Christ, if you're not afraid of that, then you really won't be afraid of anything. You will be set free to love one another sacrificially, through love to serve each other. You will be set free to fail in doing that, to get up and try it again and fail again. You will be secure in the love God has for you. You will feel freedom to go to dangerous parts of the world where you may be killed for the gospel, freedom to risk limb and life. So, love. And then when you're done loving, love each other more. Look at God's love, come back down, love each other more. Love until your love has chased out every shadow of fear until it is a perfect, mature love that casts out all fear.